It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. I'm here in the studio with Francis Fukuyama, one of the world's most esteemed political scientists and thinkers, uh, who has been expounding big theories of what's happening in the world for decades now. And he has a new book, which is just coming out here in England, called Liberalism and Its Discontents, which seems a very apposite topic right now due to the world situation. So let me just start, if I might, by talking specifically about that. Sure. Some people are seeing this war, this invasion, this sudden fracturing of a kind of global consensus as further evidence of the demise of the liberal world order. And yet you seem to be a little bit more optimistic. You seem to see in it an opportunity. Tell us about that. Well, I think that Vladimir Putin is really at the center of a kind of global anti-liberal campaign waged by both uh, authoritarian great powers like Russia and China, but also by a number of populists uh, that have arisen in you know different democratic countries like Viktor Orban in Hungary or our Donald uh, Trump. Uh, and um, Putin said very explicitly that he thought that liberalism was an obsolete doctrine. And a lot of uh, conservatives in the United States have actually, you know, they're backing away from it now, but they, they like Putin. You know, they like the idea of a strong man that could cut through all the liberal nonsense that was, you know, they saw going on in their societies. Uh, and I think what's happened is that with this invasion of another democratic uh, country, Putin has created a certain amount of moral clarity uh, because, you know, one of the things that I think is the biggest advantage of a liberal a state is the fact that it's not authoritarian, it's not a dictatorship, it doesn't kill people, it doesn't invade uh, neighbors, and he's demonstrated really what uh, the meaning of the alternative to, you know, at least one of the alternatives to liberalism is. And I think it also points to this kind of authoritarian tendency among a lot of people on the extreme right, you know, in our democracies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that sense, you know, he's clarified things. So you're overtly predicting defeat. No, no. And Mike, uh, tell us about that, because you wrote a piece for um, your publication which suggested that you think Putin will lose. What does so that mean? I, I think that there's no way that he can win in the terms that he expected. He was hoping for a war that would be over in 48 hours. You know, he'd take Kiev, uh, he'd overthrow Zelensky, he'd put in a puppet government, and then that would be the beginning of the incorporation of Ukraine into a greater Russia. 
And that's been completely stymied. And even if he's able to take uh, Kyiv, uh, you know, the capital, uh, I don't think that he's ever going to control Ukraine. I mean, he doesn't have remotely the, the, the army or the number of people that would be required to subdue a country of more than 40 million people. So in that sense, he's lost. Um, the possibility of a much better outcome is still out there because the Ukrainian army has done so much better and his army has done so much worse than anyone expected at the beginning of the war. And so I do think it's possible that um, you know, the, the Russian offensive will stall. Uh, it could actually crumble. Uh, Putin could be forced into a rather humiliating withdrawal. And if that happens, his own position at home is going to be very tenuous because you know, he's a strong man. People like the fact that he presents himself as a strong man. But if a strong man is humiliated in this fashion, you know, I think people aren't going to support him anymore. So that's, it's a possibility. I'm not predicting that this will happen, but I do think if it does happen, that's actually going to be very good for, you know, for liberalism in general. Are you anxious about what might happen if that humiliation does start to appear, which is that he might double down uh, or escalate? You know, there are other weapons he can use, famously nuclear weapons, but other kinds of ways of escalating. And some people think, you know, if you if you force a strongman leader into that kind of corner, mm -hmm. things might get even more dangerous. Do you worry about that? Well, it's happening as we speak. I mean, he can't defeat the Ukrainian military, so he's basically taking it out on Ukrainian civilians. So in Kharkiv and Mariupol, you know, I mean, he's basically destroying these cities the way he destroyed Grozny or, you know, Aleppo in Syria. Uh, and that's, that's an awful situation. Uh, and, you know, it poses some real challenges for, for other, you know, democratic uh, supporters of Ukraine, because at a certain point, you know, do we just stand by and let this humanitarian catastrophe uh, happen? Uh, but uh, I what, think what's that, your view on that? Should we just stand by and let that happen? You know, it's it's an unprecedented situation because in all of the prior humanitarian interventions, we weren't going up against a country, a, a great power with nuclear weapons. Now, I think the actual threat of nuclear weapons is uh, exaggerated. It is there. Uh, it's very hard for me to think of Putin actually using them because he would be the first one, you know, to lose if if you actually escalated to that level. Um, he, I think, really doesn't have many alternatives other than killing more civilians because it's not as if he's got vast reserves of military power that he can call on. Uh, but it is going to be worse for the Ukrainian people themselves. And that's really, you know, what so, worries So given me. all that, uh, would you be minded to encourage more military intervention? Well, I've been, I've been in favor of certainly uh, a much bigger weapons supply I think NATO has done a decent job at that. Uh, I haven't been in favor of something like a no-fly zone because that actually involves attacking Russian forces directly on Russian territory. And that's a step I think that at, at the moment we really don't want to take. Uh, but certainly there are things short of that, that that we could be doing that I would be in favor of. So let's go with your hopeful theory then and mm -hmm. say that whether it's an overt defeat or some kind of bloody nose at least, some kind of strategic withdrawal, that is the ultimate outcome of this. You see in this, um, I think the quote is, the possibility of a new birth of freedom. I guess what you mean is a, a kind of revitalized 
Western liberal section that is sure. ready to defend its principles? Or, or what do you mean by that? Well, no. you know, I think that our liberal democracies have gotten very complacent over the last 30 years. You know, after the fall of the former Soviet Union, we had this extended period of peace and prosperity. Uh, and I think that... That was the end of history. It was the era. end of history, right. Uh, and I think that especially younger people who grew up in that world where they didn't experience either the violent conflict of the 20th century or the dictatorship of a communist regime began to take you know, liberal democracy for granted. They assumed that this was simply the way the world was and nobody could uh, threaten that. And as a result, uh, they weren't willing to stand up to the challenges. You know, they weren't willing to actively defend uh, democracy where it was under threat. And I think that you know, that's really um, one of the reasons that Putin thought that he could get away with this invasion, because he thought that you know, the United States is internally very divided, that Europe really doesn't believe in uh, much of anything anymore. And one of the you know, nice things that I think has happened is the unity that's been expressed within the NATO alliance, especially in Germany, where they've basically revised you know, 40 years of Ostpolitik. Uh, they had been, in a way, Russia's biggest defender and friend within the Western Alliance, and now they're doubling their defense budget. They're willing to, you know, mm. ship weapons to help Ukraine, uh, and so it's a, a really major turnaround. Isn't there a temptation to see this as a kind of democracy versus tyranny battle with Ukraine as the democracy? But the reality is, is that it's a nationalist battle, isn't it? I mean, it's a nationalist sentiment that's driving the the energy in Ukraine. There are nationalist, overtly very nationalist contingents within there army and it's the kind of birth of a new national myth that is taking place mm -hmm. before our eyes it's not a, it's not a, it's not democracy they're chanting in the streets well so this gets to one of the themes in my book which is i don't think that you can be in in favor of liberal democracy unless it's embedded in a nation uh, i don't think that there's a kind of abstraction called liberal democracy that people fight on behalf of they fight for liberal institutions in their country, and they fight as a as a result of a combination of, uh, you know, national pride and because they like the institutions. You know, I mean, I, I remember distinctly. I've been to Ukraine many times since 2013, walking around, you know, Maidan Square. Um, you know, you, you feel like you're in a free society because people can come and go as they wish. They can criticize the government. They can vote for opposition parties. You know, there was a, a freedom that you could experience in Ukraine prior to this invasion that you couldn't in a million years experience in, uh, in uh, Russia. And for a lot of my Ukrainian friends, you know, what they were fighting for was a combination of the sovereignty of Ukraine uh, and the fact that it was democratic. You know, that's really what made Ukrainian nationhood different from Russian nationhood, is that the Russians had to live with this centralized dictatorship and the Ukrainians could live, you know, with a very similar culture, but, but in a free society. And so it, it's a mixture of the two. So yesterday, the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, banned 11 opposition parties, including the main opposition party in Ukraine. How does that sit with it as a defense of democracy? Does that make you uneasy or are you forgiving of that because it's no, a time of I'm, war? No, I'm completely forgiving of that. I mean, I think that the op, these pr 
pro-Russian opposition parties were always funded by Russia, and so you've been invaded by this dictatorship, and you know you want to you, you can't just pretend that their allies in your country are uh, you know equally patriotic uh, uh, citizens. You know, Europe faced this during the Cold War, you know, with the French and Italian communist parties, which were in, you know they were allowed to compete, but everybody had this suspicion that they actually didn't have the best interests of France or Italy, you know, chiefly in mind because they were part of this, you know, larger uh, mm. Marxist movement. Uh, so I think that it's just, it's just prudence. So let's go to this potential flowering of freedom moment that you've talked about. I guess it, it as you say, it hinges on the West being united and more assertive in defense of its values, at least in theory. But what you detail in this book is simultaneously that the West has become less enamored with some of its values. Is there an alternative outcome, which is that while it becomes more assertive, it continues on the road of becoming essentially less liberal because it's more effective to assert your competitive advantage in a more Chinese or East Asian style society than it is in the fully liberal society we're used to. Do you see that as, a, as an alternative? Well, no. I think that uh, the real alternative is to correct some of the what I would regard as the excesses of liberalism that have really driven uh, some of the opposition to liberalism itself. And I think that exists both on the right and the left. It has nothing to do with accommodating a more Chinese you know, type of, of regime but really, the, you know, the important choices are within the, you know, what we've understood to be the liberal tradition. And I think that's true on both the right and the left. And so on the right, uh, you know, you had a kind of economic liberalism that evolved into what's now called neoliberalism, uh, which was a kind of worship of the market and a denigration of the state that I think led to a kind of um, globalization that really put economic efficiency above, you know, all other social goods, and led to a, you know, big increase in inequality uh, globally. It led to a deterioration of a lot of public services and a, and a real deterioration in the minds of a lot of people of, you know, the 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 meaning of of their democratic community uh, because everything was just seen to be an expression of private interest, and that I think uh, needs to be walked back. On the right, you had a vast expansion of the idea of personal autonomy. You know, I mean, one of the good things about a liberal society is it protects personal autonomy, but our autonomy is not unlimited. And I think, uh, in particular, we also are creatures that want community. We want to share values with other people. And when you have a liberalism that is like an acid that destroys any prior sense of community, that's also something that, that you know, people don't really like. And when it undermines the sense of nation and, you know, the ability to feel patriotic, uh, I think that's uh, a problem that, that liberal societies have had. And so in both those cases, I think we need to walk back some of the, you know, the more extreme extensions of, of, of liberalism to something like what it was, uh, you know, previously. One example of this is the debate around free speech and how much free you know, press and that institution within liberalism that mm -hmm. you talk about as being so important, you do observe that that has become more problematic, as they say, yes, in, the last, in the past few years. Do you now 
see that being able to be reversed. I mean, in, in this more fraught world where the West is more defensive, there's more of a sense that people speaking in favor of the enemy are going to be dangers to society, whether inside or out. Do you think it's realistic to hope that there'll be a kind of restoration of a greater free speech? Well, it's even more complicated than that because I think some of the biggest threats to free speech are not actually those that are being done by governments, particularly governments in the, in the democratic world. Uh, you know, the real problem is, is actually a sort of private one where you have these big internet platforms like Google and Facebook that have the ability to strongly amplify certain messages. And what they've been doing is amplifying material that is toxic, often, you know, conspiracy theories, because what they're primarily interested in is not the good of a broader democratic community. They care about their bottom lines, and therefore things that are viral are, you know, things that they want to promote rather than things that are, you know, politically uh, good. And so you have a big concentration of private power that has, you know, contributed, I think, to the toxicity of a lot of the discourse in uh, modern democracies. And it leads to these huge, you know, real conundra because th there's then a call for the government to regulate, um, you know, their activity. And in Europe, that's a little bit further uh, advanced. So in Germany, you know, they have this Nets DG law that, you know, criminalizes publishing false or, you know, fake news. Uh, and that's where you get into real dangers because it's not clear that the government is the right, you know, regulator of that kind of activity. But it's not clear that either that, you know, these large platforms should simply be allowed to, you know, make these determinations on their own. And I don't think we've really quite figured out how to, you know, navigate between these different threats to, to freedom of speech. It's almost like the sort of reaction became more dangerous than the initial threat because there That's was right. these people you're talking about, conspiracists and people who were considered to be on the right. And then the kind of establishment has tried to police that. And in a sense, they now pose a new danger, don't they? Do you observe that? that no, that's, that's right. I mean, I think that a good institution should not depend on the goodwill of whoever happens to be in power. Uh, right now, for people on the left, the leaders of Google and Facebook are more sympathetic you know, to the, their agenda. But you, know, you have to imagine if a Rupert Murdoch takes over Facebook or you know, some equivalent you know, character on the right and has that kind of power to amplify certain messages and suppress others, will they be as happy leaving that up to private power? And I think the answer is no. Uh, so I do think that there has to be a, you know, some kind of balance, better balance thought, and, and basically just a reduction of the power of these platforms. So this kind of revitalized liberalism that we're hoping for how is it not closer to the East Asian model? Because if it, if it involves a greater presence of the state, maybe in industry as well as in other aspects of life, it's perhaps less individualistic, uh, it's less relativistic, it's more patriotic. This is sounding quite a lot like an East Asian model, which is very fashionable at the moment, including among British conservatives. Everyone seems to be very impressed by their performance during the pandemic and so on. Is that what you are sort of nudging the West towards with these final I don't recommendations? Think so. uh, you know, like I was saying, I think that just within the realm of historical liberal democracies, 
you can have uh, you know more uh, effective concentration of authority and you can have more checks and balances and more dispersed authority and actually you know the real model is not East Asia it's the classic Westminster system because under that so that's uh, basically a parliamentary system with first past the post political parties and you could win you know let's say a popular majority that's only in the high 30s and that would give you a parliamentary uh, majority that would allow you to basically do anything you want you know so that classic West Westminster system was oftentimes described as a potentially democratic dictatorship because you had very few checks and balances you know no no written constitution uh, and mm -hmm. so forth um, I don't think that that's the right model for contemporary democracy I think that you do need more checks and balances but I would say and this is something I've been arguing for some time the American model where you distribute power both you know in a federal system and among three branches of government uh, is is it's it's too limiting you know there are too many checks and balances so for example so you can't get enough done you, you you can't build anything in the United States in my state of California uh, we can't build high-speed rail or really even deal with the uh, ecological crisis brought on by climate change because there's too many vetoes distributed to too many people in the society and you know when you have a diverse society people aren't going to agree on things and so that needs to be dialed back you don't need to talk about china you know you, you just need to look uh, at the singapore or, or singapore yeah i mean you you really have plenty of democratic models that you can choose from that simply don't put that many obstacles in the in the path of you know some kind of collective action do you observe something that a lot of our readers talk about in the comments I notice is that these kind of systems that we used to think of as neutral which it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Are part of the institutions of a liberal democracy, such as the banking system or you know, the internet or mm-hmm. media freedom or commerce or even some of these cultural institutions that were, there was a sort of perceived neutrality. And in recent years, that has changed. And a lot of people feel that they now take political positions and that people are vulnerable to being excluded mm-hmm. from those systems if they don't fit. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we saw in Canada, people's bank accounts being frozen for protesting against the COVID restrictions. In a sense, these incredible sanctions against Russia are the kind of next stage of that, where the, the international banking system and a lot of these systems are literally being weaponized um, against Russia. Is that something that we should worry about? Because it's, it makes feeling confident in a liberal democracy less possible. Well, I think that uh, the neutrality of as many systems as possible is critical to modern government. You have to have a bureaucracy that is able to implement things and do things effectively that is basically under the control of, you know, democratic uh, principles that, you know, uh, that control the system. Uh, And it's certainly possible for these institutions to become politicized or captured by narrower parts of the democratic community. And that's why I think you actually need continuing democracy, meaning you need to constantly be able to contest uh, decisions that have been made by whatever group, you know, seems like it's abusing its its power. So that could be the, you know, the government itself, and the bureaucracy can be captured by, you know, certain powerful private interests, and you need to be able to push back against that so in, in the example of this Canada mm-hmm. event that I just mentioned, do you think it was a mistake of Trudeau to sort of activate the banking system against those protesters because it somehow crossed a line? Or did you have sympathy with that? Uh, no, I think that, you know, given, given the issue that they were raising, which, you know, had a certain degree of legitimacy, uh, it probably was a step too far. But I'm also pretty confident that democracy in Canada is sufficiently you know, robust that, you know, there that's not going to be the final decision, you know, that there's pushback against that and that, uh, you know, their government is going to adjust to the, you know, the pressures that are, uh, you know, being posed to, you know, to that kind of exercise of power. Uh, on the question of, uh, you know, these larger sanctions against Putin, uh, that's a complicated one because I don't think we've ever seen the actual freezing of central bank assets, you know, by other countries. Uh, and that may accelerate actually a shift out of the, you know, the Western system. I mean, maybe, you know, Russia and China and a lot of other people that are not happy with, you know, these Western institutions will devise some alternative. And that's a, you know, that's a danger that uh, is posed by, you know, the action. That, that now taken. seems pretty likely, would you think? Uh, yes, although... You know, I mean, this becomes a kind of technical question. I mean, my understanding is it's actually not so easy to create an alternative to, let's say, the SWIFT interbanking, you know, payment system. Right. Uh, so we'll we'll have to see. But does that mean that you are anxious about some of those sanctions then? Do you think there's a, 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 we might have taken it too far 
and we might actually be bad for the West in the long term because we lose that power of veto. We lose the soft power that came with having other countries using our systems. Essentially, if they are uh, developing their own ones, we've played that card. It's uh, it's possible. I think you know the violation that it's punishing is also pretty is a pretty severe one. So you know I. Not sure that it was a mistake, or I'm not ready to say it was a mistake at this point. One of the deeper themes in your work uh, that stretches right back to the end of history and earlier is that there are motivations within the human condition, almost. Uh, You talk about this Greek word thumos um, in that earlier book, and the same kind of themes are touched upon in your latest book, which is that there's something about polite liberal democracy in its perfected sense that doesn't answer some deep questions in the human soul. We almost want to have something to fight about. We want glory. What is your observation on that, having seen the decades since the end of history up to now? Do, Do you now think we are predisposed to prefer war to peace in some way? Uh, not under all circumstances, but there is something that drives us in that direction. I mean, thumos is usually translated into English as spiritedness. You could call it pride uh, or the demand for respect or recognition. And I think that a great deal of politics is really not about contests over material goods. It's really a contest over respect. You know, so you think about something like gay marriage or the Me Too movement. You know, these are fundamentally dignity issues where, you know, gays and lesbians want to have their unions celebrated as having equal status to heterosexual unions, or women want to be treated with the same respect that men are in a workplace where you know they they haven't been uh, in the past. Uh, and this is really not really governed by economic calculations. It's it's governed by you know, a different kind of desire that oftentimes works across purposes. Now, if you think about what's going on in populist politics, I think that this kind of demand for respect was very much driving the whole upwelling of, you know, voters that voted for Brexit and voted for Donald Trump because the world has become uh, divided along different lines. You know, it's really the more educated, more cosmopolitan people living in big cities like London or New York or San Francisco uh, that tended to vote for progressive parties. And then, you know, people living in uh, smaller communities in the countryside uh, with more traditional values that voted for for populists. And I think, you know, there's an economic division there, but there's also a respect division because, you know, those more educated people tended to look down on, you know, the others that... Mm didn't share their particular kind of cosmopolitan uh, worldview. And I think a politician like Donald Trump was quite brilliant in understanding how much resentment there was and could play on those resentments. Uh, and I think that's really what's defined a lot of our politics you know, in, in recent years. What strikes me reading your latest book is that in that diagnosis, you don't actually differ that dramatically from some of the more populist thinkers, in that they would also identify these deeper felt intuitions that the more kind of rational only tendencies of liberalism failed to cater for. Mm -hmm. I guess the difference is they felt that they were virtues 
or important things that needed to be accommodated, whilst you seem to think they are dangers or they are parts of the human condition that we should try to keep to one side. Is that fair? No, I don't think it's right that I think they should be kept to one side. I think that um, any human striving depends on this sense of pride. I mean, just you know, this is true at an individual level. If you didn't want to be recognized as a great pianist or a great writer or, or you know, baseball player, or football player, whatever, uh, you probably wouldn't strive for excellence. You know, so all of us want uh, the attention and the respect that comes with great human achievement and excellence. And so I don't think you could have excellence if you didn't have uh, the striving for more. And I think in a way it's kind of morally neutral. I mean, you know, Mother, well, I don't know about Mother Teresa, that might not be the best example. example. <laughs> but, you know, any great artist, you know, has that, that motive, you know, in, in somewhere in their psychology. But the greatest criminals in the world also are driven by that desire to, you know, to stand out. Donald Trump realized that he could be noticed by everybody for saying completely outrageous things that didn't make any sense, you know, in, in a kind of more narrowly rational way. But, you know, they excited people and it got him attention. So, you know, this desire for respect and recognition uh, is, you know, it, it's the basis of good behavior and mm. it's the basis of bad behavior. But it doesn't fall within this economic calculus that I think you rightly associate in, in many respects with classical liberalism. What about the instinct of culture, the instinct to want to belong to a culture that you recognize as your own and that you feel at home in and that you are sort of defending or, or a part of a, it's tribal, I guess is another mm -hmm. more negative sounding word for it. Is that something that you think needs to be kept in check or is that something that the liberal world needs to accommodate better? Uh, both. <laughs> so it, it really depends on what that community is based on. Uh, so I think in today's world, if you simply base it on race or ethnicity, on a single religion, it isn't going to work because our societies today are, you know, too diverse really to um, have a, a kind of single point of reference uh, like that. Um, but I do think that people have a very deep social instinct. You know, they, they want to have something in common. Uh, they want to conform to uh, social norms. They believe, you know, in their national identity. Uh, and I think the, the, the key trick is to make that national identity compatible with liberal values. Uh, so it should be based on things that can be uh, accepted by people regardless of their gender, race, you know, ethnicity, but still hold them together. That kind of community is going to be thinner than I think one that's that's based on a single, let's say, religious belief. Uh, but I think that it can still be built. So, you know, the classic one was really the sort of Republican community coming out of the French Revolution, where it was the French language, kind of literary tradition, even a culinary tradition, you know, uh, other things that made up uh, French culture. So someone like Leopold Songor, the great, you know, Senegalese poet, could be taken into the Académie Française because despite the fact that he's a black man, he writes beautiful French. You know, in a way, that's my understanding of what a liberal national identity is. You need that identity. You need that 
feeling of patriotic belonging to a, a national community, but it also needs to be an open and accessible one uh, that, you know, accommodates the actual diversity that exists in your society. So you're arguing for pushing back of some of the excess of, of liberalism, perhaps less of a kind of ultra-individualism, more of a space for a sense of community, a sense of virtue. I mean, in the European context, you're sounding like a conservative. Well, it, it is a conservative European, you know, but I think that Europe in a way defines the limits of that kind of liberal internationalism, uh, despite the... But do you accept that sort of categorization, do you think, in a European context? It uh, would be a yeah, if, if uh, to be a European conservative means that you still believe in the importance of nations, yeah, then I you know, would probably categorize myself that way. But I think that uh, you know, the more cosmopolitan understanding just doesn't work. Uh, you need nations, um, I think, for very pragmatic reasons, you know, that the nation is the repository of legitimate violence, basically. This is the old Max Weber understanding of what a state is, that state is legitimate, you know, monopoly of force. And uh, right now there isn't an alternative to the nation as a locus of coercive power that is at the same time controlled uh, by institutions like the rule of law and democratic accountability. Uh, and therefore, you're going to have to deal with a world of nations. The European Union, you know, sought to get beyond that. Um, uh, in theory, you could have created a federated Europe that behaved more like a, you know, an actual nation, but what you ended up with was something that wasn't really that. Um, and, you know, when push came to shove, like during the Euro crisis, you know, it fell apart. It, it, there wasn't that kind of sense of European solidarity, you know, between, let's say, Greeks and Germans. Um, so I Does do that make you consider the Brexit controversy in a different light now, a few years down the line? Uh, I, can, I can see why people voted that way, but I still, if I had been a British citizen, I would have voted to stay in because I think that, you know, you, you probably could have done more to push the European Union in the right direction as a member, but, you know. A lot of what you talk about in this latest book are the kind of preconditions for a confident liberal democracy. Uh, it's institutions, um, it's rule of law, all of those things. It could alternatively be summarized as confidence that there's a, a sort of sense that whatever happens politically or in the smaller arena, everything is going to be okay. And so you, in that scenario, you have the generosity to accommodate people who think differently. Are you worried that that confidence has now gone in Western countries? And whatever this potential new version of liberal democracy looks like, it's going to be more fraught because there isn't that magnanimity anymore. Uh, I think that I worry about that more in the United States than in most parts of Europe uh, because our polarization has become really intense to the point where I think a lot of people on the Republican right are willing to actually abandon, you know, some really important aspects of institutionalized democracy. Uh, the failure to accept the legitimacy of the 2020 election, you know, something like you know, pretty strong majority of Republican voters believe that this was a fraudulent election based simply on, you know, a manufactured lie by one person. 
Uh, and that's a, you know, that's a really big threat. Uh, liberalism does not accommodate all forms of diversity. And in particular, if you have, you know, a particular party or force or, you know, political movement within your society that rejects some of the foundational principles of liberalism, you, you know, you, you, you can't deal with that. And I think we do face that kind of threat in the United States. I think it's actually, it's, it's ironic because the United States was always seen as the ur-liberal country that was the bedrock, but I think actually it's, it's safer in, in most parts of Europe where there's a greater degree of political consensus. So does that mean you're, you're, you're less optimistic about the future for the US? I'm then? very worried about, yeah, I think that there are scenarios for the 2024 election that could be very, very nasty and involve, you know, vile, actual violence. I, if it's contested. Yeah, if it's contested. Um, I hope it doesn't come to that, but I think it's a real danger that as an American citizen, I'm quite worried about. Your phrase, the end of history, is constantly quoted back at you, and at least we've discussed it before, but it quite accurately describes a period of history which felt like uh, the end of history. And do you agree that period is now over? Oh, sure. I mean, we've been in this uh, so-called democratic recession for 15, 16 years now. In which case, what are, what are we to call the next period that's coming? Because in a sense, we're getting some positive ideas from you that there's going to be some new reassertion of free societies, but then there's very troubling trends like the ones you just mentioned. What does the period after the end of history look like? Well, I don't know uh, what it's going to look like. I think actually a lot of it will depend on the outcome of this war in Ukraine. Uh, because if Putin, who has been so central to the anti-liberal world order, succeeds, then you know that period is going to look much more authoritarian. On the other hand, if he's humiliated, forced to back down, then it's going to look much better for, uh, you know, for liberal societies around the world. Um, but even if the latter materializes and he is forced to back down, there are plenty of other illiberal forces out there you know, in the world. There's China, which in a sense is a bigger challenge because they're a more powerful uh, country that are more successful in, you know, in many ways than Russia has been. There's all the Venezuelas and Irans and Syrias, you know, these would-be authoritarian, or they are authoritarian countries that have still have uh, ambitions, and so there's going to be plenty of struggle left, even if you know we win this one in Ukraine uh, in the short run. And your bet, for the record, is that we are going to win that one in some form. So uh, then we can bring you back to discuss it when it uh, yeah, transpires. that's right. Look, the the reason, the only reason I sort of think that liberalism is going to survive all of this is given the history of the last three hundred years. You know that. Uh, liberalism arose after the European wars of religion because people realized that fighting over which sect of Christianity you followed was not worth it, uh, and therefore we should tolerate, you know, we should have religious toleration. Uh, it then got challenged by the rise of nationalism in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And after those two bloody world wars, you know, people again said, well, maybe we shouldn't be fighting over which nation is dominant. Maybe we should you know, come up with a more tolerant system. And we've now gone through another cycle where we have kind of taken these liberal principles for granted and now people are striving for more. So maybe we have to go through another cycle of witnessing the alternatives to liberalism before we come back to saying, oh, well, maybe, 
you know, tolerating diversity is not such a bad thing after all. I, I hope it doesn't, <laughs> it's not as bad a cycle as the previous ones. Uh, maybe we might get a little bit inoculated by what Putin's done in, you know, in Europe, but we'll have so to it's see. It's like a necessary war of some kind. I hate to say that any war is necessary, but you know that's the way it's worked out in prior centuries of human history. Francis Fukuyama, thanks for coming in to talk to us. Thank you very much for having me. That was Francis Fukuyama, author of many books, including the famous End of History, coming in to give his view on what the current conflict means for the future of the world. We've had speakers on this channel recently who see a much graver, more gloomy outcome from the current war in Ukraine, a kind of fracturing of the world order, a retreat into much more totalitarian microstates. Well, Frank has just given us a more optimistic solution there, which is that actually this is in some way a necessary reminder and that the principles of a free and liberal society will be reasserted after a conflict in Ukraine in which Vladimir Putin gets a bloody nose. Obviously, we shall see, and he has agreed there to come back and talk about it, depending on what actually happens. So thanks to him, and thank you to you for tuning in. This was Unheard. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.